Psalm 22, verse 22. The psalmist declares in verse 21, you have answered me. What was the question? The question was in verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? What was God's answer? Verse 24, for he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he turned, or he heard, excuse me. God did not forsake Jesus on the cross. We can therefore see the question as somewhat rhetorical. It was the crowd at the cross who were convinced that God had forsaken Jesus. He seemed far from helping Jesus. He seemed far from the words of his groaning. Think about that crowd there and their words and their attitude. Their, their conclusion was, this man has been forsaken by God or else God would come to his rescue. But he was not forsaken. The cross was all part of the plan, a plan in which Jesus' death on the cross would be accepted as a sacrifice for the sins of the whole world. God was, at that very moment, in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, according to 2 Corinthians 5.19. Now, those who say that the Father, in fact, uh, forsook Jesus, turning His back on Him, use 2 Corinthians 5.21 as a kind of proof text. So, let me read that to you. It says, For He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. The argument is, since Jesus was made to be sin for us, the Father had to turn His back on the Son. Now, what does it mean, though, that Jesus was made to be sin for us? It means, I think, He was our sin offering. He was our substitute. He took our place on the cross. It doesn't have to mean Jesus was literally made sin. Apologist Ron Rhodes, good guy, we like him, he stated it like this. He said, we conclude that the Apostle Paul's intended meaning in 2 Corinthians 5, 21 is that Jesus was always without sin actually, but at the cross he was made to be sin for us judicially. While Jesus never committed a sin personally, he was made to be sin for us substitutionally. Just as the, and I like this part, let's see if we can follow this, not that it's so deep, but it, it, it's an interesting argument. He says, just as the righteousness that is imputed to Christians in justification is extrinsic to them, so that the sin that was imputed to Christ on the cross was extrinsic to Him and never in any sense contaminated His essential nature. And so what Ron Rhodes is talking about is that in that verse, 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says that Jesus was made to be sin for us and that we became the righteousness of God in Him. Now, the argument would seem to go to that if we believe Jesus was actually made sin for a period of time, and we also have to say that we have already been completely made righteous. Now, that's not true. We've been declared righteous by God because we're in Christ, but we will not be righteous until we will not be fully sanctified until we're with the Lord in our glorified bodies. And so Jesus was made our sin offering. He died instead of us, and his perfect righteousness was acceptable to pay our debt of sin. We're not in any way minimizing the sacrifice of Christ. We're just pointing out what it truly accomplished on the cross. The cross solved the sin problem. And, and sin is a problem. It is the universal problem of the human race. 
and the universal solution is the cross of Jesus Christ. There is no other solution to sin. I know when I, uh, I didn't understand it, you know, when I was younger and I studied philosophy at the university, uh, but all the philosophers, they don't tell you this, but what they're really trying to do is answer the problem of what's wrong with human beings, what happened to the human race. They don't use the word sin, but in a Christian context, we would. And the, the, the situation is, how do you look at the human race and say, where did sin come from and why are we so messed up? And they all have their own ideas about that. And, and some of them are brilliant, they just are stupid at the same time because they don't make any sense with what you actually see. And the philosophies don't really work. Human philosophies don't work. I've told you many times over the years, because I was kind of stuck in the, in the existential philosophy because that was really happening back when I was in college uh, many moons ago. And uh, existentialism, if followed through... Essentially, there's many branches of it like everything else, but essentially it says that there is no God, or if there is a God, it doesn't matter, you know, and we're just here on our own. We have to find meaning for ourselves in a meaningless world that is absolutely absurd. Uh, And so somehow, for some reason, uh, you want to find meaning. And the example that Albert Camus used to use was the myth of Sisyphus. I I can't remember if Sisyphus was Greek or Roman but uh, he was doomed to hell, and uh, his punishment was to roll a rock up a hill. And, and, and he had to roll this boulder up the hill, and then the boulder would fall back down the hill. And he would go down and get the boulder and roll it up. And that's all he's doing now for all eternity. He's rolling this boulder up the hill, and it's falling down. But he has an existential moment of victory every time he walks back down the hill because he's free of the boulder. And so that's, that's how he finds meaning in life. And if you think that's meaningful, you're an existentialist and you're stupid. But uh, uh, so uh, as you get deeper into existentialism, and this is true, nobody ever believes me, but uh, they, they have to start convincing you not to commit suicide because suicide becomes a valid option in a meaningless world where there is no eternity. You think, well, why should I get up tomorrow? I'm reading novels in college by a guy named Franz Kafka. How many of you are familiar with Kafka? He's one of my favorite authors. That tells you where my head was at. I read 400 pages of his novel, The Castle, until I realized he never finished it. And so it became an existential journey of my own. And, and this guy, Kafka, he, would, he, he wrote... He was, the, the point of the novel, the whole point of it was that someone was summoned to the castle, but they didn't know why, and they never found out why. And, and it, it, they portray this absurd world where you might as well just kill yourself. And that, that's, that's one of the top philosophies out there, guys. I mean, existentialism. So uh, the universal problem is sin. As Billy Graham would say, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart, and, and the universal solution is the cross of Jesus Christ. But it doesn't end on the cross, obviously. As a result of the cross, Jesus is highly exalted. Here's how the Apostle Paul put it. You're familiar with this from Philippians 2. Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, Psalm 22 is going to close with 
a similar description of the exaltation of Jesus ruling and reigning. And so in verse 22, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. In the original context of the psalm, David had come through his trial. He wanted to give the glory to God. Don't you want to do that whenever the Lord does something for you? You realize something about the Lord, you want to give him the glory. He probably called some sort of assembly to make his declaration. He was the king. He could do those kinds of things. Maybe it was the very first performance of this psalm, opening night, as it were. In my Bible, the notation at the beginning of the psalm says, to the chief musician set to the deer of the dawn. That, that was the deer of the dawn right there. That was that perfect timing. Did you? Was that perfect? I read this. When I read this, I always think of Delta Dawn. How many of you remember, remember the song Delta Dawn? Delta Dawn, what's that flower you've got on? Yeah, please. Now, your mind is ruined now for the rest of the night. Cleanse your minds. As to the future fulfillment of this, it looks forward to the return of Jesus in his second coming to be received by the Jews as their Messiah. In the middle of the tribulation, the Antichrist reveals himself in an event Jesus called the abomination of desolation. He's borrowing from Daniel, but he called it that as well. The Lord warned the Jews of that generation, that future generation, flee into the wilderness. Do it immediately. And if you do, you'll be kept safe by him supernaturally for the entire last three and a half years of the great tribulation. And so he's assembling the Jews in the wilderness. Here's that same future as seen by the prophet Zechariah in chapter 14. He says, behold, the day of the Lord is coming and your spoil will be divided in your midst for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. So God will preserve a remnant, a gathering, an assembly. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two. From east to west, making a very large valley, half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley, for the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with you. And so the Lord is promising to save a remnant of the Jews, gathering them out into the wilderness. And they will be saved. It says in Zechariah 12.10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me whom they pierced. I'm referring to the crucifixion. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. In the book of Revelation, it says this, Revelation 1.7, Behold, he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him, even so, amen. The cross was the D-Day that guarantees Victory Day or V-Day. And so verse 23, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. Jacob and Israel refer to ethnic Jews, the physical descendants of Abraham who will be saved in that glorious second coming of Jesus Christ. I've told you many times, today there is a resurgence of teaching that when the New Testament mentions Israel, 
somehow it means all who are believers in Jesus, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. Uh, there are those who want to um, eliminate the distinction between Jews and Gentiles, uh, you know, in terms of God having a specific plan still for the nation of Israel. They say that Jesus was the true Israel. In other words, Israel failed in their mission, and so Jesus came and fulfilled all that they were supposed to do, and so now everyone just is in Jesus, and so there's no, no future plan for the nation of Israel. We reject that. The New Testament consistently maintains distinctions between Jews and Gentiles and between Israel and the church. And almost everybody who you listen to who goes wrong on Bible prophecy or doesn't quite make sense with the dates and the times and the movement of prophecy, it's because they confuse the nation of Israel with the church of Jesus Christ, and they don't want to see a separation there. God must and will fulfill His unconditional promises to the physical descendants of Abraham. God made promises to ethnic Jews, the physical descendants of Abraham, not just people who would one day get saved. And he will fulfill his promises to them, and that's just what he's going to do through the great tribulation. He's going to bring Israel, Jewish people, to a saving knowledge of himself. He's going to save a remnant, gather them together, assemble them, and the Lord is going to proclaim the glory of God to them, and they will be saved. And so verse 24, for he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him, but when he cried to him, he heard. The crowd at the cross, thinking Jesus was forsaken, were directed to Psalm 22. In the first 20 or so verses, they would see the crucifixion predicted at least a thousand years prior and they'd hear words they themselves were that minute speaking. I've told you before, uh, Jesus may have just spoke the first line, directing people's minds to think of Psalm 22, which they would have uh, memorized. He may have read the entire, I always say read, he may have recited the entire psalm from the cross. Some think he went on through the psalms to about Psalm 35, where uh, it finally says something similar to, it is finished. We don't know for sure, but even the, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, would have revealed the heart of what was happening in the crowd because they were thinking, this person's been forsaken by God. They would have started thinking about that psalm, and they would have realized, with any minor insight at all, that the psalmist was describing the scene that they were looking at and the words that they were saying, and it would have been pretty heavy, to say the least. Uh, a valid conclusion to a thoughtful person would be, God has not despised nor abhorred Jesus. He hasn't hidden his face from him. He heard him, and he's accepting his sacrifice for my sins and the sins of the whole world. And so that is a better conclusion, I think, to what these verses are talking about. Uh, there's evangelism taking place right at the cross. Verse 25, my praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The great assembly probably refers to folks in the millennial kingdom who come from all over the earth to worship the Lord 
For his part, Jesus is giving praise to his Father. Now, we call it the Millennial Kingdom because uh, a millennium in uh, Latin is a thousand, uh, and so a thousand years. Uh, Revelation 20 tells us many, many times, I think seven times, that the kingdom on earth is going to last a thousand years. It's a real kingdom on the real earth with Jesus really on the throne. We, we come back with him after having been raptured, uh, and, and the Lord uh, uh, will give praise to Jehovah. Now, what vows will Jesus keep? I think it's a way of saying that he totally and completely and absolutely fulfilled everything in God's word. It's an amplification of his cry from the cross. It is finished. The Bible says that Jesus came in the volume of the book, and he fulfilled all that could possibly be fulfilled, and so he kept his vows. William MacDonald, in his very excellent Believer's Bible commentary, suggests that there's a change in speakers for the remaining verses of the psalm. I think he's right. He says, now the Holy Spirit speaks, describing the ideal conditions that will prevail during the peace and prosperity of the millennium. Uh, not unexpected that the Lord would talk about the future kingdom because after all, uh, when Jesus came the first time, he came offering the Jews their kingdom. Uh, they rejected him, and so the kingdom's been postponed. But after the cross and after they're saved, then the kingdom will be established in the future. And so verse 26, the poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. This is, I guess, what we would call a general summary of the conditions that will prevail in the kingdom. We will never achieve such a kingdom of men. It requires the righteous, benevolent theocracy of Jesus Christ. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have a, a righteousness in our government or our nation shouldn't pursue righteousness. It's not a defeatist position. I'm just saying this is not, we are not going to create a utopia for Jesus to return to. Uh, we'll never, it's been said, uh, you know, obviously it's, it, you've heard this a million times, but uh, there's no peace without the Prince of Peace. And so uh, these are conditions that will exist in this future time. It says in verse 29, all the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him, even he who cannot keep himself alive. This is simply a way of describing the frailty of human life. It is appointed unto men to die, to go down to the dust. No one can keep himself alive. can also be translated, no one can keep alive his own soul. And so spiritual life is in view here, a spiritual life that can only be yours by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so this is indicating, I think, that everyone will bow before him whether saved or not, just as we read in Philippians. Every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You have to understand, this is always a point of confusion for, for people. Uh, when you talk about the future kingdom of heaven, you have to, or heaven on earth, the millennial kingdom, you have to remember there are human beings who survive the great tribulation. And when Jesus returns in the second coming, he judges those human beings in Matthew calls it the sheep and the goat judgment, but he, he deals with everybody who's left alive on the earth 
uh, in their human bodies at the end of the tribulation. And uh, he judges the non-believers, sends them to a place of, of temporary punishment, awaiting their uh, destiny in the lake of fire. And then there are a bunch of saved people on the earth in their human bodies who repopulate the earth. And so throughout that thousand years where the physical conditions of human beings and the earth are restored, um, there are multitudes and multitudes of offspring, and all of those individuals are born with what kind of nature? With a sin nature, because they're still descendants of Adam and Eve, and they will be evangelized. What's amazing to me is you stop and think about it for a minute. Jesus Christ, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, is on the earth. You and I have come back with him in glorified resurrection bodies. And they still, at the end of the thousand years, many of them will still rebel against all of that. Uh, and and it's, it's crazy. You know, because you talk to say, yeah, I don't know if you've ever had anybody say, well, if, you know, if I could see Jesus, if he appeared to me, I'd believe. And that's just not true. The heart of man is so wicked. Uh, there are people who are going to see Jesus ruling and reigning in his glorified body and who are going to still reject eternal life. But during the millennium, during that thousand years, everyone <clears throat> will uh, be submitted to the rule of Jesus Christ. Every knee will bow to his rule. Verse 30, a posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. And so as I've been saying, the kingdom of heaven on earth, uh, multitudes will be born and there will be a great need for evangelism as folks will still need to get saved. Now Jesus on the cross was therefore assuring the Jews their promised kingdom was still to come. I mean, just that whole thing by itself is a mind blower. People, you, you remember from the Gospels what the people are saying and what they're doing and how they're rejecting the Lord and what they've done to him, and he's on the cross, and he from the cross is encouraging them, even in that state, that, hey, this isn't the end. You're, the kingdom is going to come. Victory day is, is coming. It must be postponed because of their rejection of him, obviously, but it's coming. He will establish it at his second coming, and all Israel will be saved. Amen? Amen.